Hi, everybody. A quick message before we begin today's podcast. We have just released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. Stay tuned for the end of the episode for more information. Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back to our wonderful listeners to the podcast. So on this episode, we are going to be exploring what is normal, common, expected, and when you might need a little more support. My guest today is Melanie Sutton. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Melanie, I always start off with this question. It helps us kind of build some context for our podcast. And that is, tell us a little bit about you. Okay. Well, I am a doctor of physical therapy. I'm board certified in women's health and recognized as an advanced practitioner um, in pelvic health by the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialists and the um, American Physical Therapy Association's Academy on uh, Pelvic Health. I also have certifications in oncology rehabilitation and lymphedema, and I've worked exclusively in pelvic health and oncology for the past 15 years. I have a master's in education and leadership, and I aim to bring awareness and information to more women on how their bodies work um, and how they can get them to function at their best relative to pelvic function specifically. I think this information isn't widely known. It's very important in caring for ourselves. And in addition to working part-time in an outpatient clinic, I also spend uh, time in my educational role with telehealth and consulting and coaching. Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing. Ooh, that was like, that's a, that's a fancy list of amazing things you're up to. Um, so let's, let's start our conversation off with like normal and expected functions of the body. Great. So we're going to divide this up into um, the three main functional areas of the pelvis, which are bladder, bowel, and sexual function. So related to bladder function, women should be able to sleep a several hour stretch without having to get up to pee at night until they're around 65. And unless they have medications or other medical conditions that might um, make that different. They should also be able to go three to four hours during the day between peas and not have any leakage either with stress or urge. And stress is any pressure that comes down through the body, like jumping or um, running or exercise and urge is just a strong urge to go to the bathroom. So even if it's been three or four hours and you're on a full bladder, you should be able to make it to the bathroom without leaking. So that's pretty much bladder function norms in a nutshell. Um, We'll talk about bowel function next. And bowel function, what's considered normal is to have a frequency of 
anywhere from three times uh, every every three days to three times a day. So there's a wide range of normal. And you should be able to execute a bowel movement without pain or strain the majority of the time and have full control of your bowels unless you have like a viral illness, a traveler's diarrhea, liquid stool. Um, so that is bowel function. And then sexual function should be without pain. Um, if it's mildly uncomfortable sometimes, that should be easily relieved with uh, lubrication or a position change and shouldn't be persistent or limit you in any of the things you want to be able to do sexually. So with um, life cycle changes and pregnancy, postpartum, menopause, there may be some changes to that baseline status, but you know, th that should be transient with those um, circumstances until you hit sort of your, your normal baseline again. Um, so one, a couple of examples of those are that it's typical to experience urgency, frequency, and maybe even some mild uh, leakage during pregnancy and after delivery up to, you know, a few weeks, but that should resolve by the time you have um, had your post-op checkup at six weeks for the most part. And it is also typical with menopausal changes to experience dryness, irritation, and some discomfort during sex, but that should improve and resolve with use of lubrication. And if it doesn't, then that is one of those things that would be outside the, the realm of normal. So, you know, these are some examples that kind of give a framework for what normal is and, and what starts to be, um, you know, outside of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly common to experience some bladder changes postpartum, right? Um, yes. And of course, there are things that we can do to optimize our recovery and make sure that we regain our function and it should resolve, but Correct. persisting. Well, because, you know, I'm sort of thinking about like some of the narratives that we've been sort of told in commercials or like in media, you know, like, look, we made these um, diapers feel just like underwear. Like, don't worry if you have light bladder leakage, it's no problem. Like you can, and you know, I'm so grateful that we have products that we can use in the interim when we're experiencing some of these, um, symptoms, but I, I just sometimes feel like the messaging's like, just do this. And like, then all is okay. And it's like, well, do I really want to just wear these for the rest of my life? Like, is that it that, that you have nothing else to say? Right. Yeah. That's not a long-term solution. That is a, uh, you know, something that's available to use, but you should be looking at the root causes and what can be done to make things better before settling into, you know, uh, deciding that you want to use a product on a long-term basis. And it's the same thing with medications. Um, you know, well, there's a lot of advertisements for medications for various um, pelvic functions. And while they have their role, that's certainly not um, 
the first line of defense, in my opinion, and uh, certainly not after unless other things have been tried, if someone would like to try something else. Indeed. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, a conservative approach is such that it is like, let's see if we can kind of work with your body first, Yes, you know, before we start introducing things into the body and or removing things or, you know, like surgical procedures and things of that nature, which you know, in some instances for reasons that need to happen, sometimes, you know, surgical approaches are needed. However, like, I sort of feel like it shouldn't be the first go-to. Agreed. Yes. Um, Particularly if, you know, um, the symptoms can be resolved without any further intervention. Um, You know, I've certainly seen people um, who have had surgical interventions and still had problems. Um, And then they uh, do some intervention that's more conservative and the problems get better. And then they were like, well, did I need to have the surgery in the first place? Um, So I think that that should be a a last resort um, before trying some things that are more conservative and available. So we talked about kind of obviously normal kind of bladder bowel function. And, and so if somebody's kind of outside of those parameters, um, would like, are those indications that an assessment with a pelvic health physical therapist would be warranted? Like, how do you, you know, like if somebody's listening to this podcast and they're thinking, well, I don't know, I, I sort of, it's been, you know, three, four weeks past my postpartum date. Like, do I start worrying about this as a long-term problem? Do I do something? Do I wait a little bit longer? Um, right. You know, like, so, you know, oftentimes recording, we kind of give norms. So then it's like, what, what if somebody's falling outside of those? Like, what, what does that mean? Sure. So, you know, I, I would not worry if somebody is, you know, three, four, maybe even up to six weeks um, with symptoms postpartum. If they are not getting better, if they're progressing, but maybe slowly, then you might want to wait a little bit. Um, but if they're not getting better, I would certainly say within a few months after pregnancy is a reasonable time to start um, you know, maybe seeking a referral to a pelvic health specialist, because the sooner we get in to help work on those things, the better people often do. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we necessarily want to jump on things the first couple of weeks when you're having symptoms, if your body's still kind of recovering from childbirth and, um, you know, mom's not sleeping, baby's not sleeping. I mean, that's not the time either. So I would Mm -hmm. say, you know, within a few months, definitely would recommend within six months, if you're still having problems and it's not getting better. Um, In terms of postmenopausal changes, the, you know, if, if, if um, you're having symptoms with your bladder, bowel, or sexual function, and they are not getting better with like, lubrication perhaps, and maybe some minor modifications, the sooner that you can get in to get treatment, the better your results will be. So I would again say, you know, within um, a couple of months, certainly um, 
preferred within six months that you have an onset of symptoms that you get in to see somebody and see what we can do to help turn that around. Okay. I think that's helpful for people to kind of have a sense. Now, what about somebody who's been experiencing symptoms for a long time? Because I get asked this all the time. Is it too late for me? Like, is my age, like, can any, can anything be done? Like I feel like I'm older. So I get asked this question all the time. So, yeah, I do too. Um, and you know, it's never too late. It really truly is never too late. And so I have had people who have had symptoms for, for decades and they come in and we take a look at what needs to, um, be put in place to support them, start working on some things, oftentimes the symptoms get better. Um, Sometimes they can resolve. And either one of those is a positive outcome that's worth um, considering, even if you've had symptoms for years and years. So, you know, if you haven't done anything yet and are interested in learning conservative approaches for symptoms, I would highly recommend that you see what can be done for your symptoms rather than just thinking there's nothing that can be done and, you know, settling or living that way. I think, you know, it's certainly, there are times when what we can do is limited, but I think, you know, that that should only be something that you have to wrap your head around after you've really given it a good try first. Indeed. Indeed. You can't know until you sort of try um, and see what what is what the outcomes can be. And, and and again, sometimes in some cases, you know, maybe a pessary is needed if there's pelvic organ prolapse and, you know, it's not progressing as far as it needs to. Sometimes surgical procedures are warranted, um, but it's worth a try always to start with something conservative, like, can we work with our body? Can we make some modifications? Can, you know, can we get the improvements you're looking for to live out your life the way that you want to live it? And if not, then it's like, okay, well, even still, you know, you want to have a good functioning pelvic floor and good bladder and bowel habits. If you get a pessary, you want to have those good pelvic floor muscles and, you know, lifestyle knowledge before you get a surgery. Cause you know, they're, or things that can happen after that. And you want to be protective, right? Right. You know, I I think there's certainly a role for medical interventions that are procedural, even medications, but it's important to remember that all medications have side effects and also that surgical interventions are, I mean, it's a surgery. So if you can get the results that you want to live your life without having to go down that path, I think that that's, um, you know, probably, Uh, personally, I think that's worth pursuing and putting some effort into. And it's also, you know, I think of it as setting yourself up well for success, even if the plan is to have a procedure or surgical intervention. If you have a prolapse repair, you want to protect that and support that so that the surgery has a good outcome Um, rather than inadvertently, um, you know, possibly having some problem with the outcome of your surgery because of not knowing how to take care of your body. Indeed. Indeed. Cause there's risk. There are other risk factors depending on the prolapse repair and those prolapse repairs 
you know, aren't always lasting forever, right? So yeah. if, if you're not, you know, if you're chronically constipated after a prolapse surgery, there could be some problems a couple years down the road with sure. that repair, I mean, right? Yeah, a lot of um, increased, uh, what we call increased intra-abdominal pressure or pressure going down through your abdominal cavity can, um, you know, put a lot of strain on both your own anatomy and a surgical repair. So something like unmanaged constipation or bearing down or lifting in ways that aren't the best for managing that pressure so that your body, um, you know, doesn't have too much of a strain on it. Those are important things to know. Indeed, indeed. Okay, I want to switch gears here just a little bit, kind of returning back to sort of normal function and, you know, just like understanding our body's cues and things. Um, You know, I sometimes come across, and I'm sure you've come across this in your practice as well, you know, things around, you know, individuals developing urinary or bladder dysfunctions because they ignore their natural body signals. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about kind of like what happens when we ignore our need to pee or ignore our need to go take a, you know, take a moment to have a bowel movement. Like, you know, what are, what are some consequences if we just like stop listening? Sure. Um, well, they're not good. Um, (laughs) I, um, I have had personal experience with that prior to, um, going into this specialty of pelvic physical therapy. I was a general, uh, physical therapist in an acute care hospital. And, um, you know, I just didn't, I didn't even think about myself all day. I didn't drink. I didn't pee. I, um, ran around on the floors for eight to 10 hours a day. And then I, started experiencing key in the door syndrome where I couldn't get my um, key in the door and was soaking my scrubs. And this is in my twenties. This is prior to having children. So um, I know personally how things can go awry um, and professionally as well, because I've seen thousands of women who have um, had symptoms in these areas. And so, you know, we don't know how to take care of our bodies, but we also don't take time to take care of our bodies. And both of those things are are very important. I think what happens if we don't know any better or do any better um, is that our bodies start to develop dysfunction. They figure, well, we're not going to listen anyway, so um, we're just going to do our own thing. And so um, dysfunction, a lot of times, I think, can be prevented by learning how to take care of your body. And that, that uh, involves learning how it's talking to you and what your choices are to respond to it. So, um, you know, kind of along that line. So what does this mean? What does this look like? Well, your bladder will start to talk to you at about halfway full and it's not a very strong signal at that point. Normally it's just kind of this twinge of, Oh, um, you know, awareness, I should go to the bathroom. That one doesn't necessarily need to be responded to that first urge. Um, but when the urges get stronger and more persistent is when you want to start finding a bathroom. Um, and that again, usually happens somewhere between, uh, two and four hours, depending on your intake, your, um, irritants and, you know, some other factors that influence your urge. But what you don't want to do is be a camel and hold it all day just because you can, um, because the bladder will then 
its signals start to get dysregulated and it will give you super strong ones with no time to go to the bathroom, no warning, or it may give you urges all the time that you can't tune out. Um, so going too infrequently or not frequently enough, either end of that spectrum can start to give problems with the bladder. And, and for example, going too frequently might be every time you see a bathroom or every time you think about peeing, well, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go because it's here. Um, or just in case that's, that's a, um, common word I hear a lot. I'm going to go just in case and, um, or safety peas is another term for that. So, you know, we need to sort of check our signals, listen to them, be aware of them and check them with what's probably really happening at the bladder in order to give the bladder a chance to pee that's convenient for us, but also healthy for the bladder. Thank you for just kind of highlighting the different um, spectrums and alerting that like how we respond trains our bladder, right? right. And yes. eventually, you know, our nervous system's a smart little monkey and it goes, oh, you want me to tell you to go pee like, you know, then, or if you keep emptying the bladder, it's like, oh, you want me to tell you sooner? Oh, exactly. okay. You know, and, and so you're right. It starts kind of playing you know, playing a game with, you know, inappropriate messaging that could be really disruptive. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've seen people who can't leave their house other than medical appointments and are in the bathroom every 10 minutes. That's an extreme. Um, other times I'll see people who they're like, I don't understand. You know, I was, I was a nurse or I was a teacher and all these years I never had any problems. Well, how often did you pee? Oh, I'd go all day without peeing. So the bladder can tolerate that for, for, for a while, but at some point it's going to break down and start to give you issues. Um, Not to mention so, increased risk of urinary tract infections. Exactly. And so there isn't an increased risk of urinary tract infections with voiding at three to four hour intervals, but if you're holding it, you know, several hours at a time, um, it can increase risk of a, a variety of dysfunctions, urinary tract inf infections being one of them. Mm -hmm. So how do we know what our body is saying? Like, you know, how, how do we, you know, I, I'm bringing it right really down to the basics. Like how's, how does somebody know when to respond and when to not respond? Sure. So one thing I want to mention though, before we go into sure. that is that that bowel function is a little different. Um, you should not be deferring a bowel movement for three to four hours the way that you can with the urinary system. The bowel really is, um, you know, it needs to be responded to when it tells you that it's time to go. And it should give you up to 10 minutes, um, but it's not reasonable, nor is it good for you to wait longer than that. That's really just a mechanism to get you to the toilet in time. So I just wanted to bring that up because I don't want people to extrapolate that, that bladder function and bowel function have the same parameters because they don't. Okay. Yes. Do so, not ignore this, the call to stool. Exactly. Yes. Um, so the urges can be subtle. Um, and so I think it's, it's paying attention to your own body and listening to what it wants. And that doesn't necessarily mean being vigilant to it and like 
all the time thinking every little twinge means that you need to go. But it does mean to pay attention to the fact that, yeah, you probably do pee first thing in the morning. That's normal. It's usually pretty urgent um, after storing for you all night. And then, you know, you should pee again sometime before lunch um, and sometime before dinner and before bed. Those are like bare minimums. And so thinking about that as a framework of, you know, it's lunchtime and you haven't peed yet. Oh, I should go pee. Um, You don't need to wait for your bladder to like hit you over the head with a super strong urge, nor should you expect it to do that to you to get your attention because you may be tuning those out too if you're busy and a lot of us are and we do that without even realizing it. So I think it's a matter of checking the urge with sort of a, a time frame of, well, when should I, when have I gone? And is this a convenient time for me to go again? And giving your bladder the opportunity to empty every few hours because you want to be nice to your bladder, but you also want to be in control of when it does it. So you're sort of watching, you know, with an eye towards both what your signals internally are saying and then what the clock is saying to you externally about, you know, it's been a while, you should probably go. Um, And in terms of bowel signals, they can be really subtle. And so for some people, it may be just a a fullness, a heaviness. Some people may experience discomfort or cramping. Um, But if you pay attention to what your, what your body's telling you, you may start to develop um, the pattern of how your body talks to you. And then you respond to that pattern. Um, And the more that you do that on a regular basis, the more that the pattern becomes established. So oftentimes people will need to go mid-morning or or after breakfast because there are reflexes at play with eating, with being up and on your feet, with activity, with hot beverages in the morning, particularly coffee, um, which is a, a gut stimulant. So kind of the culmination of all those things often will lead for people to have a bowel movement at a, a regular time in the morning. And it's okay if it doesn't, but you may want to look for some of those subtle signals um, around that time in the morning, just to check in and see, you know, is is there something that my body's telling me, let's sit down and try and let's see how it goes, but not forcing it. If it doesn't happen, just kind of trying to reestablish the connection between what your body is telling you and what it actually needs. And what happens when you get to the bathroom is kind of going to be the feedback. Oh yeah, I did need to go. Um, Or I sat down and waited for a bit. Nothing happened. Maybe that wasn't my signal. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think even as a simple thing of like pausing every couple of hours to take a couple of deep breaths in and be like, all right, you know, just taking a moment to be like, all right, when was the last time I had a sip of water? When was the last time I went to the washroom? You know, do it like it's, I, I think part of the problem that, you know, I personally experience, and I'm sure many others do is, you know, our days get so full and our demands are so many that, you know, it almost feels like we can't even take a break to like, just kind of stop for a second and like evaluate, like, do I have any needs? (laughs) 
that need to yes. be met right now? <laughs> you know, am I hungry? When was the last time I ate something, you know? Um, so I think just even from like a simple lifestyle perspective, you know, pausing to take like three to five breaths, you know, just kind of like checking in. Yes. Whether you need to go or not, I just think that like, we need to also give our nervous systems like these like little windows of time to just like, all right, let's like just check in and see where things are at. (laughs) I I couldn't agree more. And I think that um, women tend to have more problems in the bathroom um, or they seek care more readily. And we could discuss that, but um, it's not just anatomical that we have um, some differences in our biology, but I think lifestyle and culture plays in as well. So we as women are socialized to be caregivers. And for many of us, our days and routines are filled with taking care of children or parents or both and working. And this is normal, quote unquote, normal in our society. I mean, busy is the new black. And so, um, to take time out for ourselves, like even just to pee or take a sip of water is way beyond what many of the people that I've worked with have even considered doing prior to um, dysfunction developing. And even then, you know, sometimes it's a bit of a challenge to get people to to stop and pee um, and take care of their bodies and know that that's okay, that, you know, being away from the phone for five minutes um, at the office or, um, you know, having to even take longer than that sometimes for a bowel movement, it's okay. It's what our bodies need. And I think that, um, you know, checking in every couple of hours is a great practice. Breathing is a great practice. And the more that you are able to kind of center into your own physical body, um, then you start to, to be able to read the signals and give your body what it needs. And I really think that that's the key to taking care of, ourselves, our pelvises, but our whole selves is um, connecting, connecting in and taking stock and then making choices around that information. Indeed. I would definitely say those are really great places to start, right? Like just pausing to take a couple of breaths and just like, be like, all right, is there anything I need right Right. now? Right. Um, So I think that's an amazing place to start. And the other piece that kind of comes to my mind is you know, taking the five minutes may seem inconvenient to have a full bowel movement and empty the bladder. Uh, But I would say that when a dysfunction occurs um, and the volume gets really loud, it can be extremely disruptive. Yes. To our day to day, right? So we could pause a couple times throughout the day and, you know, um, feel like we're sort of, oh, this is five minutes of unproductive. But if you have to pee uncontrollably, right, there's like this uncontrollable sensation to go to the washroom every even 30 minutes is going to be very, very disruptive. Having to search out and know where the washrooms are before you leave on a social outing, that's very disruptive. Yes. And time consuming and uncomfortable and you know, emotionally also taxing as well, right? Going from, you know, go, go, go to all of a sudden, you know, my body signals have literally taken over because 
the like, listen, like we've been talking, but you haven't been listening. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, you know, people don't realize, hopefully they will as a result of conversations like this, but people don't realize that the, what the um, dysfunction can look like. So, you know, taking five minutes to pee a couple times a day may seem like too much until you're spending two hours a week going to and from therapy um, or until you are, you know, spending a fairly large budget on incontinence type supplies um, until you are afraid to leave the house because you don't know where the bathroom is um, or worried, you know, that vigilance kind of right at the front of your brain, worried that, um the, the outing that you're on, the social event that you're going to have an accident and then people will um, know what's going on with you or see and it'll be embarrassing. So, you know, I think that we don't realize that this like five minutes a few times a day is so doable compared to what the outcome could be if we don't do it until it's too late. And that's where I think learning and prevention and implementing some basic self-care strategies comes in so that people don't end up with the type of problems that we see in the office. Indeed. So on, on the note of prevention, you know, um, what, you know, what should we be, what, like, what are some key important things? I mean, we've sort of listed out a few, like, pausing to understand the signals, making sure that you've gone to the washroom at least four or five times in the, you know, span of your waking hours, uh, you know, trying to, you know, pay attention to signals for bowel movements uh, in the morning. But are there other things that, you, you know, just from basic, simple things that people can do from a prevention perspective? Sure. So one of them is hydration. Um, I think most of us go around, um, you know, on varying degrees of dehydration. Um, By the time you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. Um, And we do get some fluids from food um, and, you know, other drinks that aren't water. But a good rule of thumb is to to drink several glasses of water um, throughout the day. There's there's differences of opinion on, you know, half your body weight in ounces. You definitely need more if you are breastfeeding, um, more if you're exercising, more if you're trying to lose weight, but most of us aren't getting enough. And so um, drinking mostly things that are not irritating to our gut and bladder, I think is important in, in hydration of the entire system, as well as um, taking care of these pelvic organs and their functions. Um, knowing that some substances can be irritating to the bladder, that doesn't mean you can't have them, but it does mean that you should know so that you are at least, um, aware of the impact of caffeine, um, carbonation, citrus, spicy things, all of those things can impact the gut and bladder, um, to make it more active, which could be a good thing for you or a not good thing for you, bladder or bowel. Um, And I think breathing is probably one of the most um, underutilized and overly important things that we can do to take care of ourselves. Um, Many of us are are chest breathers. Most of our activity is happening around the neck and upper chest. Sometimes people even bring their shoulders into the breath rather than allowing their body to relax in their midsection and allowing a full expansion that involves the lower ribs and the diaphragm. 
So this doesn't necessarily need to be effortful. In fact, sometimes when I say take a deep breath, people will actually raise their shoulders up to their ears because they're working so hard to show me they can take a deep breath. It's all about relaxing your entire body, including your middle, and then allowing that breath to fill, which engages the belly expanding with an in-breath and falling with an out-breath. And so many of us as women, I think, you know, because of maybe beauty standards and appearance and concerns about aesthetics, we'll carry ourselves in ways where everything is upright and tense and tight and the tummy is tucked in. And I, you know, I have worked with people who hold themselves like that all the time. They don't even, they're not aware, or if they are aware, they say, well, my, you know, mother always told me to sit up straight and to tuck you know, so that I was in a good posture when actually our bodies need to be able to relax into themselves when we are not exercising or working. So, um, you know, suck it in for the photos. Yes, but you don't want to live that way when you're not working um, actively as in exercise or physical activity allow your body to relax, allow that belly to expand so that you can get um, a calmer nervous system, calmer muscular system. Um, and that, that allows a lot of good things to happen for your body across multiple systems. And it's one of the easiest things that we can start to do to take care of ourselves once we're aware of it. And for people such as myself that are tension holders in our bodies, you, it may be a practice of just noticing where you hold that tension and then allowing a softening to happen. I'm probably to the day I die going to be someone who stores tension in their muscles. However, I'm more aware of it now, more able to let that go. And as a result, have ha experienced um, a lessening of a variety of symptoms and um, issues throughout my body because that is the natural state of relaxation. And we just aren't, we aren't allowing ourselves to even relax on the commode, let alone any other places in our lives. So it doesn't take a lot of time. It's just a difference in awareness and implementation of these strategies. Indeed. And that's why I was saying, even just pausing, you know, a couple times throughout the day, just to, you know, on purpose, kind of take that deeper breath. And I always, you know, for myself, I, I love the exhale part, really like focusing in on that long exhale. And just like, as my lungs deflate, I allow my shoulders to drop. I allow my stomach to relax, my pelvic floor to relax. Like I just allow my body to kind of just like sort of let go, even yes. if for a brief moment, right? Because, you know, yes, it's important to have strong muscles, but you also need flexible muscles, like they need to be able to move through a range of motion in order to be strong effectively. Yes. Yes. And I mean, I call it, um, and you're, I'm sure familiar with this term as well, but a body scan, just take a minute. Let's take a, a, uh, a sensory check in your body. Where are you holding tension? Do you need to be holding tension? Can you do that a little softer? Can you, um, you know, drive the car without gripping the steering wheel? Can you sit without planting your feet firmly into the floor? So just kind of noticing opportunities to let go and taking them. 
um, more often so that your body gets both because you're right. It does need to be strong, but it also needs to be flexible. We need both things to function and we need that to happen, um, throughout our body, not just in our pelvis. Indeed. Indeed. Um, and I think, you know, also when we take a moment to body scan for tightness and tension, that's a great time to scan for urges and scan for emotional states and breath patterns, because I think all of those things play a role, you know, not just in our pelvic health, but in our digestive function, our urinary function, our, how we interact and show up in the world, like all of those things that we need to just kind of check in, right? Because if we're really tense and, you know, our shoulders are up and we're all, you know, really stiff, that may construe some different social cues to individuals, right? Like, are you approachable? Are you not approachable? Like, are you friendly, not friendly? Oh, this person looks mad or (laughs) looks stressed out, right? Like we're always conveying our states of being through our bodies. Correct. And, you know, socially, yes, there is that, how, how you are in the world. Um, I think it's also important to note that there are other systems that are impacted. So um, the cardiovascular system, most notably. So when someone is holding and storing a lot of tension in that way and and kind of um, how they are in the world is um, in a more um, upregulated manner, they can have issues with things like um, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, which is high blood pressure. And so by incorporating some of these changes, you may see um, effects beyond what you're looking for that are positive. So an example of this is that uh, one of the women that I saw who was struggling with bladder issues, um, urgency, frequency, leakage, and had, you know, a lot of uh, tension and stress in her life. We worked on breathing and down regulation Um, her urgency and frequency and leakage issues resolved, but she also um, on subsequent visits to her physician had a lowering of her blood pressure, was actually able to get off of her blood pressure medication, which was beyond anything she thought was possible because she didn't know. So that does not mean go off your blood pressure medicine. What it does mean is that if you um, incorporate some of these lifestyle changes, you may notice effects beyond the ones you're initially looking for. Um, because this downregulation of the nervous system has impacts on your cardiovascular system, your pulmonary system, your immune system, your endocrine system, um, and your cognitive um, system as well. So mood state can be improved. Um, anxiety and, and depression are oftentimes lowered with this type of practice. So it it gives room for a lot of things to be um, better with, uh, you know, really a very conservative approach that you have nothing to lose in in trying these strategies and a lot to gain. I was just going to say, you know, something as simple as a body scan and some breathing to check in with what your body needs and like taking a moment to remove yourself from like the current chaos. Yeah. And like, I I was also thinking better sleep too. Yes. 
right? Because when we aren't, you know, busy, 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 because, you know, and I, I can only speak for myself, but if I've had a really, really busy day, that I really haven't had time to like process it. Like I'm literally, you know, one patient to the next, and then there's this, and then there's the kid. And then by the time I slow down, which is bedtime, and I go to lay down, my body's, my brain goes, oh, you're here. Can we talk about what happened today? I'd like to let you know that I was thinking this when you said this, and you should have said this. And I just wanted to let you know that, mm, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm processing my day when I'm trying to sleep. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right. Um, you know, which one night here, one night there, no problem. But, you know, if we're operating at this like high level of upregulation, right, it's really going to disturb multiple systems. Correct. And, you know, you said one day here, one day there. I like to think about the 80-20 rule. I think that's is from business somewhere. Yep. Yeah, it is. Um, but, you know, 80% of the time, if we're doing these things to take care of ourselves, 20% of the time we can get by with maybe, you know, slipping up a bit and not doing it. So if you forget to pee and it's been five hours, you know, sometimes your body's going to be okay with that. When that's your operating procedure, you're like most of the time, where you are, then that's where dysfunction starts to develop. So nobody's perfect. Um, we, I certainly am not. And even knowing all the things that I do, there are times when I will forget to pee. Um, but I can get away with it if I'm not doing it all the time. So I think it's really a matter of um, progress, not perfection, and, and looking at that 80-20. What am I doing for myself most of the time? Um, and how can I shift into that being more of my um, state of being and these sort of um, less than ideal habits being the outliers, the things that just happen sometimes. Great. I think it's just, it just like nice kind of guiding principle to work off with. Um, let's, so we've been kind of talking bladder and bowel function, but I do want to loop back now to sexual function in terms of you know, you mentioned that, you know, early post, you know, in postpartum, there could be some pain. Yes. With intimacy. Um, that's sort of, you know, I guess could be kind of expected if you've had a, potentially a tear or, um, some stitching, let's just say, whether tear episiotomy, um, you know, do we have, like, is there sort of a norm? Like, I remember me postpartum, like the first three times were not great, but then it was fine. Right. Right. So yeah. it's like, do you, like, I wasn't worried about it when it sort of happened, but I also have like a lot of knowledge in my mind of like, okay, you know, I didn't panic. wasn't super uncomfortable, but it's like when, you know, for others, it's like, okay, do I keep trying? Do, do I go if it's painful the first time? Like at what point should I be like, mm, yeah, this is, this is not good. It's not getting better. It's really, you know, yeah. I, it's always a fine line of like, 
do I kind of, you know, work with it a couple of times to see if it gets better? You know, do I push through? Do I, do I not engage? Do I get help right away? You know, do, do we have, do you have some thoughts or just even some guiding principles around maybe, you know, postpartum return to intimacy? Sure. So I think it's reasonable to expect that it would be uncomfortable the first time or few times after um, childbirth. Um, the the hormonal changes with um, pregnancy and childbirth have an impact, and breastfeeding does as well, um, as as well as fatigue and um, you know just the the physical changes from a um, tear or an episiotomy. But if that persists, I would say if it's minor and seems to be getting better and resolves, um, then I think, or is resolving, I think that that's a, that's probably fine for you to, um, manage on your own. If it's so painful that you can't, um, have intercourse or can't have it the way you want to have it, then I would say that's when you need to seek help. Um, Unfortunately, what can happen is if it hurts and then the body responds to that by guarding, which is a normal protective response of the body, then the next time your body may remember the time before and have even more guarding. So I, I don't recommend pushing through it if it's highly uncomfortable or painful. Um, uncomfortable, yes, but I would say if we're talking about sort of a zero to 10 scale of pain, um, zero being nothing, 10 being an emergency room admission is what I usually say, um, that you want to be on that lower side, less than five, and you want to see that it's getting better, not worse. Um, but the true test is, are you able to be the way you want to be with your sexual function? Um, and if you can't, after a few tries um, and things don't seem to be getting better, then I think that's when you want to seek help. In, in, indeed. Indeed. Yeah, I, I like that kind of, uh, you know, I, I, usually I'll say four and under because sometimes I'm like, oh, that five can get, you know, we, we start yeah. getting into the, we st- start getting into the tricky. I mean, you know, a five for me kind of knowing, you know, what I'm looking for, what I'm not looking for. Uh, But the other thing I would say is like, if you're holding your breath and like gritting your teeth and like holding and grasping with your hands, you know, to the pillow, trying to like make it work, you know, that's that's, that's probably not a good sign. Um, And a lot of women won't look down there postpartum. Right. I don't know if you find that quite often, um, but I do. my clients don't, you know, sort of don't want to look um, and, and their physicians don't always look at their six weeks postpartum check. And sometimes there could be some tissue growth happening there. Right. So, I mean, there can be issues with um, the healing that can be um, uh, that can be contributing to it. I would, I would get, go a step further and say, you know, even before you're like gripping the bed and, you know, clenching and all of that. I mean, it, if thinking about it makes you want to do that, 
um, then you probably should get some help um, because your brain doesn't know the difference between the activity itself and your visualization um, of that activity. And so what, what could be happening at that point, if you're, if you're already dreading it and not wanting to do it, um, that you are probably experiencing some changes in your neuromuscular system that you want to get, um, help with. That is actually a really great point. Really, really good point because yeah, our bodies will respond to perceived danger, whether it's like actually occurring or we're just thinking about it. So yeah, actually, that's a really, really good point because you're going to already be tense. And if you're already tense, the tissue is going to be more sensitive. It's going to pick up more information and it'll probably, in most cases, confirm what you're already thinking, which then further solidifies it in the nervous system. So you're you're absolutely right. If you're really fearful about it, Uh, that might be a good indication to work with a pelvic health physio so they can assess and see and we take it step by step and work on the fear thing. Yeah. And this is highly treatable. Um, You know, it's whether it's postpartum pain or pain with um, postmenopausal attempts at penetration, highly treatable. Um, And and the sooner the better. So um, I'm sure that you have also seen you know, hundreds, if not thousands of women turn around from this type of picture. Indeed, indeed. And uh, also like lubrication, you know, it's a simple, like just like a simple additive to try. Cause you know, I'll ask my, sometimes I'll ask my postpartum ladies, like, you know, do you use lube? Oh no, I don't use, right. Which right. sometimes in the beginning, it might seem like we have more lubrication, but then as Sometimes as the process goes, it's like it doesn't keep lubricating, um, right. which can become a source of discomfort. Um, but just, you know, having a little bit of lubrication, you know, even just to see, does that make a difference? Exactly. Yeah. Could it make a difference? If you haven't tried it, definitely try that. Um, and, and you know, there's, there's uh, I, I can't think of, of, of any reason not to use lubrication. Um, more, more is better. And as often as uh, possible would be my answer. Um, but I think that it's um, particularly relevant to uh, postpartum with breastfeeding hormonal changes, mimicking menopause, and then postmenopausal changes in how our hormones are that impacts the lubrication process, as well as the tissue um, circulation and flexibility. So it's, it's lubrication, um, but there's more going on than just that. So definitely try the lube. A silicone lube is great. Um, if you are not using silicone toys and a water-based lube, if you are, um, but oftentimes the, um, some of the, some of the lubes at the drugstore are tacky and more for friction, um, which, uh, it is not so helpful if you're having any pain. So I think that, you know, um, having, having some lubrication that is um, really going to stay slippery is important. Indeed. And, you know, doesn't have any extra chemicals as, you know, as, yeah. as low on the chemical scale and like no flavors or like hot, cold stuff. Yeah. Those, um, 
those can be irritating to a lot of um, sensitive um, tissue. So I would agree. Yeah. Any thoughts, like any um, suggestions in that menopausal, you know, perimenopausal, menopausal state when intercourse become, like, are there any things that, aside from lubrication, that maybe sort of just from a lifestyle helpful perspective um, to try before being like, okay, yep, I definitely need some help here. Yeah. So um, in addition to lubrication during sexual activity, um, you may be able to uh, gain some traction with just some moisturization in the vaginal tissue. So um, using a little bit of moisturizing um, personal lubricant on a regular basis can help to uh, make the tissues less sensitive and more comfortable overall. So, you know, we think about lotioning our Um, lotioning our faces, lotioning our bodies, we put chapstick on, um, and then we just leave our vulvas alone, Um, which is fine if you're not breastfeeding or postmenopausal when they don't make as much of their own lubrication and circulation. So I think moisturizing would be a good first step. The other thing I would say is that having a little bit of gentle activity in that area every day is a good idea because um, just you know, maybe as you're washing or getting dressed, using some very gentle touch to kind of um, give some stimulation and circulation to the tissues externally can help make things um, desensitize and be a little bit more comfortable overall. Um, And then I would say regular exercise and a healthy diet is also helpful because if you have, um, if you're walking or doing any, um, aerobic activity that involves the lower body, you're going to get more circulation to the pelvic floor muscles, which may help them to be more uh, comfortable when you are going to have intercourse. And there are also benefits to more of a whole foods, lower processed um, diet to sexual function. And so, you know, and that, that stems, I think, from less inflammation in the body um, and more circulation that is possible with eating that type of diet. Great tips to look at. And then, you know, above and beyond that, seeing a professional for additional, uh, additional support. Um, So I wanted to ask about, you know, I guess every kind of therapist has their own little style that they like to, or a therapeutic framework under which they sort of work from, you know, do you have a particular like therapeutic approach that you take? Are you in the like biopsychosocial model? Like, you know, how, how do you sort of, how do you kind of approach assessment treatment? Sure. Good question. Um, so if, if I had to pick a model, that would be the one biopsychosocial would be it because, um, I think that we're, our, our biological bodies are not in vacuums. So the, um, the, the mind and body interact and our bodies and minds interact with what's going on around us. So I think all of those things need to be considered for a comprehensive approach. Um, I, I believe that uh, the most important thing that I can do as a, as a provider and a specialist is to listen 
to the person who's in front of me. Um, I think there's a lot that we can um, get in terms of information just from uh, an interview and talking about what the issues are and to understand the challenges and goals that that individual has, which may be very different from the next person who may have a clinically similar presentation, but their particular um, desires and goals and um, struggles are unique to them. So I then look at that information and see how we can connect with, um, connect the, the person back into their body to help them learn how to live in their body more comfortably um, with strategies and, and um, interventions that are geared to what the clinical findings are on uh, an objective exam along with the person in front of me and the information that I gained from a subjective point of view. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing. So you're in the U.S., I don't know where in the U.S., but Asheville, well, there you go. Uh, so, you know, where can people find you, follow you? Um, you know, where, where, where would you like people to go? Sure. So my, um, my business is Pelvic Health Mentor. So pelvichealthmentor.com. Um, and that is the same name for Instagram and Facebook. I also have a free Facebook group um, that you can find in uh, that, that uh, subset of the group of Pelvic Health Mentor, and that's Pelvic Hub. There's um, a membership that's free, and then there's a VIP membership for people who want more interaction with me. Um, and then on Twitter and Clubhouse, I'm at Pelvic Health Mel. So all of those links, I believe, will be in, They'll be in the show notes. Great. Indeed. Yes. We'll make things super easy for people if they're looking to connect always, always in the show notes, which is just like the description of the episode uh, to make it easy for people to find you, follow you, engage with you. Um, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to have a chat with me. I think just some getting out some of those basic information, giving out some like, you know, basic tips on like listening to your body. Uh, you know, I feel like just knowing that could be profoundly impacting somebody's experience. So thank you. You're welcome. I, I hope so. That's, that's what, what it's about. And I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show and share this information. So thank yeah, you. You're welcome. And thank you to all of our wonderful listeners. I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast because every week we chat with somebody new on some new topic that you don't, you may not even know how it could positively impact your life. So be sure to subscribe and be sure to share out this podcast. You know, we're talking normal expected outcomes and, you know, our fellow family members and friends might be suffering in silence because we don't talk about this enough. So you probably won't know if they're having an issue, um, you know, so just sharing out like, hey, heard this great podcast on like normal pelvic health function and you could be doing somebody secretly a favor. So 
Be sure to share it out in your socials. And we look forward to connecting with you on the next podcast episode. Bye for now, everybody. Hey guys, thanks for hanging out. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have recently released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. And in this mini training, I take you through what pain is, how labor pain is different than like an acute ankle sprain type of pain. I talk about the three different ways that you can work with pain And then at the end, I actually teach three different ways that you can work with labor pain to have a more positive birth experience. If you would like to access this free mini training, you can go to courses.ecophysio.com forward slash mini training, or you can look in the description of today's podcast episode At the end of the description, a link will be there for you to get the free mini training. Hope to connect with you there. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.